Welcome to Slay Church. We are so glad that you're tuning in today and pray that wherever you are, this message will bless you. If this impacts you in any way, we would love to hear about it. Send an email to mystory@slatechurch.com. Awesome. How good is this? You can go ahead, grab a seat, turn to the person you're sitting beside, tell them you're so happy to see him in church this morning. Let him know. <laughs> Anybody love waking up to all that great snow that we got? Isn't that awesome? A few people. You know, uh, uh, you, this morning I the, realized the plow went by the end of our driveway and there was a snow bank like the size of me. And so I realized that if I'm going to get to church, I'm going to have to go out and shovel this thing. So I was out there like super early this morning. But I'll tell you what, I went out and I warmed up my preaching as I preached to that snowbank. I shall not be overcome. There's victory in the name of Jesus. And I just shoveled that thing out. It was great. And I had to shovel it because, of course, last night uh, I ran out of gas in my snowblower, which is typical, isn't it? It's like really the first time it's even snowed this year, and I ran out of gas in my snowblower. But so it goes, and so we are here, and the true faithful have made it to church no matter what it takes against all odds, here we are. <laughs> hey, I'm so excited to be able to preach to you this morning. Um, I, I really do believe that this is a word that is going to impact us as individuals, going to impact us as a church this morning. And so we are going to actually just jump right into the message. And we're going to do that by turning first to John uh, chapter 15. We're going to read John 15 verse 9 to 11. And right after that, we're going to read Proverbs 15 verse 15, and we're going to get into this today. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen behind me. This is what John 15, verse 9 to 11 says. Jesus is speaking. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Proverbs 15, 15. All the days of the oppressed are wretched, but the cheerful heart has a continual feast. Come on, if you're taking notes this morning, why don't you go ahead and write down this title for the message. You can write down a continual feast. Go ahead, write that down. A continual feast. Now, I believe that those who live their lives apart from God, can perhaps experience a type of joy on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. But I believe that as Christians and as uh, believers in God, I believe that as we position ourselves in His presence, that we truly can experience His joy as a continual feast. His joy in abundance, a joy that is not, uh, that, that doesn't run out. A joy that is not just circumstantial, but a joy that as we pull up a chair to the table of this buffet that is set in front of us in the name of Jesus, that we can experience a joy that will nourish our soul continually. Come on, let's pray. We're going to get into this this morning. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you uh, that you're here with us right now, and we just pray that you would speak to us. We pray that your presence would move in this place. We pray, Jesus, that above all else, that your name would be glorified today. And we pray, God, that the Green Bay Packers would beat the San Francisco 49ers in tonight's game. And everybody said, amen, amen. Longtime Packers fan, so uh, there's that. Hey, we're going to get into it. And 
I want to begin by telling you a story, one that is kind of interesting. And that is a story about a candy store in Sweden. And this candy store in Sweden actually has a picture of me in this candy store, okay? There's actually a candy store in Sweden with my picture in it. And it's what people see when they walk in. And, um, you know, my wife, Victoria, is Swedish. We lived in Sweden for a long time. And this candy store is about a two-minute walk away from my in-law's house there. And I was their best customer by far, okay? I've got a sweet tooth. I was there all the time. Whenever we would go to my in-law's house, I would take a trip over to the candy store. Got to know the owners of this place, made relationship with them. And this kind of candy store, it's a little different than candy stores here in Canada. It's like all of it is just kind of bulk candy, right? Like you get the scoop and you scoop it into the bag and, um, you know, you go and you put it on the scale when you're paying and you just hope to God you don't have to sell your car to finance this trip to the store. And um, so anyways, I, I would go there all the time. It was my favorite place. It was the kind of place you walk in and your eyes start to water because of the smell of sugar that's in the air. It's absolutely crazy. And um, I absolutely love this place. And uh, really, the, the owners of this place, I think more than anything, they loved Victoria's family. And uh, I'm a part of that, so they love me. And, uh, and, you know, they actually had not just a picture of me, but it was actually family portraits of our family in Sweden that was on the wall because we were such good customers and we got to know these guys. And it's pretty funny because actually the owners are Syrian Orthodox. And so, um, you know, just, just there by the cash register, it's uh, two family portraits of us and right in the middle there's a, a crucifix. And it's like, it's really weird. But um, hey, there it is. And, uh, you know, every time I go into this place, I would love it. I, strangely, when Victoria and I moved here, um, they also opened a pizza place and a hamburger place attached to the candy store, as if it couldn't get any better, right? And I'm convinced that my many trips there is what allowed them to expand their business and actually invest and open into these things. But of course, we have moved here, and I have now passed the mantle of best customer onto my three-year-old niece in Sweden, whose name is Ingrid. And Ingrid gets to go to this candy store every Saturday, and she gets to go in, and she gets to pick out four pieces of candy. And every time Ingrid walks into this store, she is overcome with joy, okay? And we know this because we get videos of it from her parents every single week. As she walks into this store, wide-eyed, she is so elated, she is so happy over the prospect that she is going to be able to pick out of these thousands of different candies, any four of these candies that she wants. She's overwhelmed, wide-eyed, she is so excited. She goes in. She picks the candy. She goes up to the front. She pays for the candy. The owner then takes the money and hands it back to the parents and says, I'm not going to charge you for this. It's okay. You take the candy. But it's amazing to see the joy that is on her face as she walks into this candy store. And really, I'm reminded of the fact that in our lives, we all experience joy over these types of things on a regular basis, where we walk into uh, situations, or maybe we get something or whatever, and we are actually overwhelmed and often overcome by joy. And that's fine in a moment. But the problem is that so often, although we experience joy with something as you know mundane and superficial as going and getting whatever we want at a candy store, so many of us walk into a place like church, and it's like we have no joy on our face whatsoever. And it's like we don't feel like, oh, this is a place where I just am so excited and I'm so expectant to be in this place. And I'm convicted over all the other things that in my life cause me joy. I'm convicted uh, over why it is that I can be in the presence of candy and be filled with joy, sometimes more than the joy that I feel when I'm in the presence of God. 
I really think how much more should we as Bible-believing Christians experience joy on a daily basis when we recognize that we are living in the presence of our Lord and our Savior. I mean, when we get a hold of this, it changes how we live. It changes how we view the world around us. It changes how we interact with other people. You know, if you're anything like me, uh, you might divide your time into two categories. There's the time that you actually spend doing things, and then there's the time that you spend getting and waiting to doing things. When we stop and think about it, there's so much of our lives that are actually spent in transit, you know, driving to work, waiting at a restaurant, um, waiting for friends to come over, perhaps waiting for friends to leave, right? Um, There's so much of our life that is spent just kind of in these transit moments where all we do is kind of wait. In fact, we even in our society have rooms specifically for this. It's called the waiting room, right, where you just sort of thumb through an old magazine, and all that we're doing is waiting. And truthfully, we don't have a whole lot of expectations in these transit moments of our lives. We don't have a whole lot of expectation that God is necessarily going to move. It's like if God's going to move, he's going to do it in the time where I'm actually doing something. And it's very unlikely in these times that we actually become aware of the presence of God, let alone his prompting and his purpose for our lives. In fact, we spend a lot of time trying to kill time with our lives. But I really think that as we kill time in our lives, we actually also are killing a lot of joy that we could otherwise experience. I think we need to remember that each and every moment is pregnant with possibility. That God gives us small gifts and opportunities on a daily basis. And so often they happen in these transit moments of our lives. Perhaps when we're running the kids to school and when we're walking to the meeting, when we're walking into work and we can't be bothered to say hi to somebody or, or, or something like that. And, and really this problem stems from the fact that we are just chronically hurried as a society. But as much as we are hurried as a society, ironically, I also think that we are more bored than we have ever been before as a society, even though we've got about a million ways that we can use to entertain ourselves. feels like none of them work. In fact, most of the time, these things make us feel worse about ourselves. And that's because we are searching for a joy that can't be found in Netflix, that can't be found in Instagram, that can't be found in social media, that can't be found in football. We're searching for it in all the wrong places. And all of a sudden, we feel bored of, in life, and we don't feel like we're full of joy, and we think, what is there to do? Uh, there's, not, there's nothing in this city to do. What do I want to do? I, I, maybe I should just go over there. There's something better uh, over there instead. I'm bored. I'm bored. You know, I've heard boredom described as the self stuffed with the self. And I think this is pretty profound. And I think we need to unstuff ourselves. All too often, the thing that keeps us from experiencing joy in our lives is our preoccupation with ourselves. We're too busy doing what we want to do when we want to do it, getting to where we need to be, experiencing what we want to experience. We're too busy with these things to take the time to actually experience the joy of Jesus that is present in every moment and around every corner. You know, I was reminded of this just a couple of weeks ago. When uh, on a Monday morning, I was sitting at a cafe, as I do many Monday mornings. And for us as lead pastors, Mondays are our day offs after a, a big Sunday. And it, it, this was a really big Sunday because the day before was our Christmas production. And I remember I had just preached 
five times the day before. And that Monday, like, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I needed to fill up that introvert tank. I just got to the cafe, got into, you know, my favorite table in the back corner where I'm by myself. And I put my head down, and I was reading a book, and I didn't want to be bothered. And, I, you know, I didn't want to talk or any of that kind of stuff. And I, I was just very concerned with what I thought was going to satisfy my own desire in that moment. And then I'll never forget, as I, had my, as I had my head down, somebody came up to me and said, hey, Pastor Luke. And honestly, the first response in my spirit was, like, what now? Right? Like, don't bother me. Like, I don't want to be bothered right now. Like, I just want to be by myself. Like, that, that's it. But, you know, I, I, I lifted my head and I saw who was talking to me. And I didn't recognize him. But it's a young woman who attends our evening services and they introduce themselves to me. And then in a moment that I know God used to teach me a lesson, uh, this young lady, she said to me, hey, I just want to take just a second, and I just want to let you know that since I've been coming to Slate, my life has been radically transformed. I've never felt closer in my relationship with Jesus, and I just want to thank you for the message that you preached yesterday because it made a, such a difference in my life. And I just felt God was like pointing a finger right at me like, hey, I'm teaching you, listen up. And you know, if I had just in that moment remained so focused purely on myself, I would have missed out on an opportunity where I could experience the joy of Jesus that was shared with me through this person's testimony. It was a powerful, powerful lesson for me to learn. And you know, I think that joy is really at the heart of God's plan for us as humans. And that's really because joy is at the heart of God. You know, Jesus came as a joy bringer. Imagine with me for just a moment how the Bible might have started out if God were not joyful, right? Imagine uh, for a moment if God approached his work the way that we so often approach our work, right? It could have read, in the beginning, God was tired. <laughs> he didn't feel like making the universe, but he dragged himself out of bed and he reluctantly did it anyways. He thought about making stars and planets to fill the sky, but it sounded like too much work. And besides, he figured that's not my job anyways. So he decided to leave early and call it a day. And he said, that, I guess that I'll have to do. And on the second day, God separated water from dry land. And he made all the dry land flat and plain and boring. And behold, the whole earth looked like Saskatchewan. And he thought about making mountains and valleys and jungles and forests. But he decided that it just wouldn't be worth the effort. And so he looked at his work and he said, okay, I guess it's fine. That'll just have to do. And God continued creating, but he didn't put much effort into it because who's really going to notice anyways? And at the end of the week, God was seriously on the brink of burning out. And he said, thank me, it's Friday. And uh, yes, it's a slow burn joke. But that's not what we hear at the beginning of the Bible. Instead, the refrain that we hear over and over and over again in Genesis is God said, and it was so, and indeed, it was very good. You know, we won't fully understand God in, until we can understand that he is the source of all joy in the universe. Until we can understand that he is the happiest being, the most joy-filled being in the entire universe. Now, don't get me wrong. God also knows sorrow. The book of Isaiah says that Jesus is called the man of sorrows. But as John Ortberg states, the sorrow of God, like the anger of God, is his temporary response to a fallen world. As creatures created in his image, we are called to reflect God's fierce joy in our lives. 
earlier we read from John 15, and Jesus in this, contextually, he was teaching his disciples all about obedience. And Jesus told them that his goal in doing this was that they would be filled with joy. But notice he doesn't just say that they would be filled with just any joy. Jesus says that they would be filled with his joy. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And this is a major shift. You see, Jesus is saying that if we want our joy in life to be complete, if we want to experience true joy, then we can't seek to experience the joy that the world tries to define for us. Instead, we must pursue the joy of the Lord. We need the joy of Christ to be that which fills us from head to toe. We need to pull up a chair to the table that is a continual feast of joy that can be experienced in the presence of God. C.S. Lewis wrote that joy is the serious business of heaven. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. You know, the Bible puts joy into the non-optional column. Joy is a command, but often we fall into the trap of joylessness. In fact, I think that joylessness might be a state of being that's most tolerated by the capital C church. I wonder how much damage joyless Christians have done to the cause of Christ. The author James Joyce wrote in his book, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, about his protagonist's decision not to become a priest. He felt that he should become a priest, but felt that if he was going to pursue the call of God on his life, then perhaps his face would have to look like all the other people who he knew that were in relationship with God. And the, the main character says that their faces looked like a mirthless mask reflecting a sunken day, sour, favored, and devout, shot with pink tinges of suffocated anger. You know, it's very poetic, but I think it serves to illustrate this idea that so often those of us that should be filled with the most joy in our lives because we know who Jesus is just are not. I wonder how many times people have misunderstood the true love of Christ because they have attached him to the judgmental, defensive, angry, and cynical spirit of those who claim to be his followers. You know, there is a being in this universe that wants you to live in sorrow, but it is not God. This is why one of our values at Slate Church is that church is meant to be enjoyed and not just endured. And that word enjoyed is a fantastic word, because right in the very middle of that word enjoyed is, of course, the word joy. And church is a place where it should be filled with joy because it's filled with the presence of God. But honestly, if we want church to be a place that's so filled with joy, we need to begin with ourselves, those of us who make up the church. Each one of us as individuals, we first need to be filled with the joy of Jesus. We've really underestimated the importance of joy for living a life that's flourishing. The part that joy plays in us living a life of discipleship to Jesus. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we see that Nehemiah is saying to his grieving uh, people, and Nehemiah said, go enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. I understand this is a tough one to talk about during 21 days of prayer and fasting, but just go with me here. Go enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, joy is strength. The absence of joy is weakness. The words of John Ortberg, I love this. He says, here is a key goal for spiritual vitality. 
It says we need to arrange our life so sin no longer looks good to us. Dallas Willard says failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. Here lies the strength of temptation. To cut off the joys and pleasures associated with our bodily lives and social existence as unspiritual then can actually have the effect of weakening our efforts to do what is right. It's time for us to take joy seriously. And as our lives are filled with the joy of the Lord, suddenly sin, suddenly temptation, and those other empty promises of joy, those things are no longer a desire to us because we already have pulled our chair up to the table of God and we are enjoying the continual feast that he brings to us. Come on, it would be, imagine this, it would be like somebody pulling like a three-day-old McDonald's French fry, cold, gross, disgusting, that they found under their car seat. Uh, um, Burger King French fry, how's that? It's even worse, okay? Pulling that from under their seat and offering that up to you, right? Meanwhile, you are sitting at a table and all of the greatest Michelin-starred chefs in the entire world have cooked the best meals. It's an unending supply of the most nourishing, best-tasting, most incredible food you have ever experienced. Suddenly, the person that is offering you this gross, days-old French fry, that no longer looks tempting. It just looks gross. The same thing is true when we are filled with the joy of the Lord, when we are seated at the table of his continual feast. Suddenly, sin no longer looks tempting. It just looks gross. I no longer need that thing to satisfy me in my life in some way because I am so filled with the joy of the Lord. I don't even want that thing. That temptation, I'm not even going to go near it. That looks gross to me because instead I'm filled with the joy of the Lord. I believe that whoever you are, whatever you're facing today, I believe that you can become a joy-filled person. But it does take some work. It takes work, actually. And it's great that we can actually become more joy-filled. But the work that's involved is recognizing that our joy is our responsibility. You know, your joy is your responsibility. My joy, my responsibility. Your joy is not the responsibility of your spouse. Your joy is not the responsibility of your kids. Your joy is not the responsibility of your boss. Your joy is not the responsibility of your pastor. My joy, my responsibility. For some of this, this might come easy. For others, it means we actually have to fight for it. Uh, But I believe that you can do it. And I I just want to, in the next parts of my sermon, I just want to offer some thoughts and some ways that we actually can pull up a chair to the continual feast of joy that is offered to us, that's found in the presence of God. I want to offer a few thoughts on how we can actually fight for joy in our lives. And the first thing that we need to do to fight for joy is we need to find joy in the present. You can start living a joy-filled life today. Psalm 118.24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The psalm doesn't say yesterday was God's day. Everything was awesome back then. Do you remember way back then? God was moving back then. Things were fine back then. Things were great back then. Bible doesn't say that tomorrow is going to be God's day. If you can just endure today, you can be glad tomorrow. But what it states is that this day is the day that the Lord has made. This day, even with all its shortcomings, even with all its problems, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
all of us live with the illusion that someday, somewhere out there, when my conditions change, then I will start being joy-filled in my life. When we're in school, we think when we graduate, then I can actually be satisfied. We think when we're, when we're single, when I get married, then I'll be satisfied. When we're married, when we have kids, then we'll be satisfied. When we have young kids, when I have old kids, then I'll be satisfied. When I got old kids, when they move out of the house, then they'll be satisfied. Then they move out of the house and you wish they were back in the house, then I would be satisfied. It's just this ongoing, continual uh, striving and searching. But today is a day we're celebrating. Today is a day that has been redeemed through Christ's death on the cross. The book of Romans tells us that overwhelming victory is ours today in the name of Jesus. Psalm 23 verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. All the days. That includes this day. But this brings up an important question. Because I understand that the reality is that many people in this room right now and definitely many people around the world are on this day experiencing pain and suffering in their lives. And we wonder how we can experience the joy of the Lord in the midst of pain and in the midst of difficulty. And even if we might not be directly experiencing pain and difficulty and suffering right now, it doesn't take too much to maybe just look at the headlines or the news or look at the lives of family and friends and look around and, and see the pain and the, the suffering that actually does exist in our world. And sometimes it feels like what right do we actually have to be joyful in a world where pain is being experienced? But I've always found it interesting how even people who are closest to suffering, when they center their lives around Jesus... When they live with moment-to-moment surrender of, as to who he is, it's amazing how even when people are close to suffering, they can experience great joy. Mother Teresa is an example. It was written about her that instead of being uh, overwhelmed by the suffering that was around her, she glowed with joy as she went about her ministry. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned at Flossenburg, and it was written about him by another prisoner there that he spread an atmosphere of joy and had a profound gratitude over the fact that he was even alive. These terrible circumstances, yet these people who were still filled with and spread an atmosphere of joy around them. John 16, says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. You see, true joy actually begins when we are able to devote our lives to something greater than just our own personal happiness and satisfaction. Happiness and joy are not quite the same thing. Happiness is a feeling, but joy is a decision. And happiness flows from that decision, but we got to make that decision to choose joy every single day. An amazing truth about authentic joy is that it is, in fact, compatible with pain. The presence of pain does not automatically equal the absence of joy. We can have joy in spite of pain and suffering. Theologian Karl Barth said that joy is a defiant nevertheless. And I love this, a defiant nevertheless. Yes, I may be dealing with sickness in my body, but I'm going to offer up a defiant nevertheless. I will remain joy-filled because I am feasting on the continual feast of joy that's offered in the presence of God. Nevertheless, if we don't rejoice today, when will we? If we're waiting for our conditions to get perfect, to experience the joy of the Lord in our lives, and we're going to be waiting forever. But if we're going to rejoice, let today be the day, because today is the day that the Lord has made. The little thing that's stealing your joy today. There's many little things that try and steal our joy. Ask yourself today, on a scale from here to eternity, how much does this thing actually matter? 
It's amazing how that can change your perspective on that situation. It's amazing how our perspective shifts when we understand how big we make little things and how little we make a big God in our lives. Another way we can fight for joy, number two, we need to position ourselves for joy. we got to position ourselves in the presence of joy carriers in our lives. We all know people who are joy carriers in our lives. People, you just got to get around them. People, when you get around them, you feel better about yourself. You feel better about life. You feel filled with joy. Joy is a contagious thing. And we got to get around people who are willing to actually speak life and breathe life into us. We're willing to encourage us. we got to get ourselves around some joy-filled people in our lives. Because, of course, uh, we all know that the opposite is true as well, that there are people in our lives who are actually joy suckers. People who, uh, you know, they've rejected joy for themselves people who have made themselves a victim, people who have uh, just bowed down to whatever circumstance might be weighing on them. And these people would love for you to not be joy-filled either because your joy is a threat to their condition of being able to wallow in what they're facing. And if we're not careful, these people can take us out when it comes to our joy. Listen, we got to pray for these people. we got to believe for these people. we got to stand beside these people. But we got to make sure that we're influencing them more than they're influencing us. We all know people like this in our lives. One time, there was a farmer who had a neighbor, and the neighbor was the most pessimistic guy you can ever imagine. He was negative about everything. Nothing was ever good. If it was a nice day, it was too hot. If it was a cold day, it was too cold. Nothing was ever good. And this farmer, he got the world's greatest hunting dog, this amazing hunting dog. And the farmer and the neighbor were going out to hunt one day, and the farmer said, finally, I'm going to impress this guy with my incredible hunting dog. This is not just a good hunting dog. This is like a fairy tale hunting dog, okay? This hunting dog can smell prey from up to 200 kilometers away. This hunting dog can sit still for days on end waiting to just for my command. This hunting dog is perfect. It's the most amazing hunting dog. And they were out hunting, and the farmer shot a duck which fell into a pond that was in front of them. And at the farmer's command, the hunting dog went to retrieve the duck. But when it got to the edge of the water, this hunting dog, not being a normal hunting dog, did not swim to go and get the, the duck. Instead, it walked on water to go and retrieve this duck, and it walked on water to come back, and it brought the duck, and it dropped the duck right at the feet of the farmer. The farmer looked over at his neighbor and said, come on, are you impressed by that? And the neighbor said, your dog can't swim, Kenny. Come on, it doesn't matter. There's some people in this world where even if a miracle happens in front of their eyes, they will find a way to spin it and put negativity into it, to disbelieve it, and to not want to say, praise God, that's an incredible thing that just happened. We all know these types of people, and we got to be careful that we don't let them shape us. One of my favorite passages from Scripture comes from Proverbs 15, 30. It says, a cheerful look brings joy to the heart. It's important that we find a few people in our lives who are able to play this role for us. In fact, maybe this week you need to make a joy appointment with someone. We're going to sit down with somebody and you're just going to allow the joy that is on their life to be able to actually just fill you and encourage you. But listen, as much as we spend time in the presence of joy-producing people, if we really want to be filled with joy, we need to spend time positioned in the presence of God. Something I've talked about before, it's called convergence of appearance. This is that thing that happens when two people spend so much time together that they start to look alike, they start to act alike, they start to sound alike. We see this with married couples all the time, don't we, right? And, and I mean, I notice it with my wife all the time when I come downstairs in the morning dress and we're wearing like the exact same clothes, okay? 
I'm wearing the guy version of it. Just put that out there. But we're wearing like the same thing. I'm wearing a leather jacket. She's wearing a leather jacket, same color jeans. And she says, go upstairs and change, right? And I dutifully go upstairs and get changed. And we see this all the time. We see this with high school students who spend all this time together. And it's funny because you see them standing in a pack and they exercise their individuality and their autonomy and their uniqueness by all dressing exactly the same, right? We see this, that the more we spend time with certain people, the more we actually become like and look like those people. And the same is true with our relationship to Jesus. As we spend more time in his presence, we start to become more like him. We start to look more like him. We start to sound more like him. We become more like him. And we can't become more like Jesus without becoming more joyful. As a church, we're in the middle of 21 days of prayer and fasting. What a great way to spend some time in the presence of God every single day. It doesn't have to be for hours on end. And if you're not doing it yet, join up. It's not too late to actually just, just dig into what God wants to do. But it's, it's amazing how as we position ourselves in God's presence, how he just begins to fill us with his joy and use us to do incredible things in his name. You know, there's a story of a pastor who was going to speak at a Bible college chapel service. And he arrived at the venue. And um, eight of the staff members of the Bible college said, can we just go? We want to pray for you in the back room before you go out and preach. And said, absolutely, let's do that. So they went to the back room, and they started praying, and the prayer went on, and the prayer went on, and the prayer went on. It was very charismatic, very, it went on, and it went on, and the, the pastor is sitting there, and he's wondering, when is this prayer going to end? You know, at some point, I need to go out there and preach, and it's going on, and he thought this is a little awkward, and, you know, they were all laying their hands on him, and, you know, that's okay for, like, a minute, but after, like, 20 minutes, uh, the pressure was starting to weigh on this guy's neck, you know, and so they're praying, and he thought it was really strange when one of the guys started praying for something totally unrelated to even that night or anything that was happening. One of the guys started praying, uh, Lord, we just just pray right now for Charlie Stoltzfus. Uh, you know Charlie, uh, he lives down the road in, in the, the silver trailer. You know, Char you know, just down the road, you turn a right at the stop sign, you make your next left, and then just past that exit right behind the sign. That's where Charlie's trailer is located. And the pastor was thinking, like, dude, you don't need to give God directions to this guy's place, right? And they kept praying, and he said, Lord, you know, Charlie, uh, he told me last week that he's going to leave his wife and his three kids. Lord, would you just be with Charlie and help Charlie? And that was it. And finally, they wrapped up this prayer meeting, and the pastor went out and preached a message to the college chapel. And he got in his car to drive home, and as he was driving home for a little bit, he noticed a hitchhiker at the side of the road. And for some reason, he decided to stop and pick up this hitchhiker, and he stopped. He uh, rolled down the window and said, hey, man, what's your name? And the guy said, my name's Charlie Stoltzfus. The pastor said, well, that's crazy, okay? Get in the car. Let's go. I'm going to take you home. And so Charlie jumped in the car, and the pastor started driving him home. The only weird thing was that Charlie didn't tell him where he lived, and somehow this guy knew how to get to Charlie's trailer. And so he's driving, he's getting there somehow, and as they got closer and closer to where Charlie lived, Charlie was a little bit more worried about what was going on. Finally, when they turned down his street, Charlie said, how in the world do you know where I live? And then the pastor said, God told me where you live. And not only that, God told me that you said you were going to leave your wife and your three kids. At this, Charlie's like, what is going on right now? They get to his house. This guy walks into the trailer with Charlie, sits him and his wife down, leads them both to Jesus in that moment, and they are just filled with this overwhelming sense of joy. Praise God. Praise God all because of an uncomfortable pre-service prayer that in all honesty 
the pastor was wondering when it was going to end. But God had a higher purpose in that meeting than the man realized. And all this to say that when we get ourselves in the presence of God, whether it feels like it or not, there are things shifting in the spiritual realm. Things are changing. When we just still ourselves before God, not viewing it as a moment of transition between things, but instead when we stay in his presence and we ask for him to move, it's amazing how he will begin to move. And as we're filled with more of his presence, we're filled with more of his joy. We continue to inch our chair that much more forward towards the table of the continual feast that he is offering in his presence. Thirdly, the way that we can fight for joy in our lives is through our perspective. In many ways, our joy flows out of a certain kind of thinking. I, I spoke about the power of our thoughts just a, a couple months ago now in our morning services, and I've been reminded in this season that, that between the events that happen to us and our response to those events lie our beliefs and our interpretations about those events. And really, I think that this understanding when it comes to our interpretation and our beliefs about the things that happen or don't happen to us, I think that this helps give us a perspective and understand the great joy that the people and the writers of the New Testament had. It kept them joy-filled. Even uh, when they were up against difficult circumstances, they had a greater perspective in their life. They, had a, uh, they didn't just view things as uh, like having like a positive thinking that kept them joy-filled. There was more to it. They had a thinking that viewed everything in light of the resurrection and the ultimate triumph of Christ. They had a different perspective when confronted with problems and difficulties. Let's be that kind of people, church, that we view everything in light of the fact that Jesus is good, and of the fact that he is on the throne, of the fact that he is victorious, over the fact that we are redeemed through him. We don't have to have a perspective of hopelessness, but we can have one of hope where our joy gives us strength in the face of adversity. We got to remember that God is sovereign, that grace beats in, that prayers get heard, that the Bible endures, that heaven's mercies spring up new every morning, that the cross still testifies to the power of sacrificial love, that the tomb is still empty, that his kingdom is still expanding. And if we want to shift our perspective to view life from a biblical foundation, you know, I think one of the best ways we can do that is to learn how to celebrate. I really do. Celebration is not a bad thing. Sometimes we think that as Christians, we need to deny ourselves having fun in life as if it leads to more holiness. But actually, we need to delight ourselves in Jesus. We need to learn the spiritual discipline of celebration. And I'm not talking about perverting pleasure or anything like that. But I'm talking about learning how to celebrate the fact that Jesus has made a way for us. We should be the most joy-filled, celebratory. We know how to party. We know how to praise people in existence. Because we know what the true source of joy is in our lives. You know, it's one of the reasons that there was such an emphasis placed on feasting in the Old Testament. Times of feasting were transforming experiences. They were times that involved activities that would bring pleasure, gathering with loved ones, eating and drinking, singing and dancing, but doing these things in such a way that would cause people to reflect on how good and how faithful and how wonderful God is and how he has given us so many great things. Even our word holiday comes from the practice of holy days. You know, often we think of a, a discipline as having to abstain from something that would otherwise give us some type of pleasure. But the only way that something could possibly be a discipline in our lives is if we absolutely hate doing it. <laughs> and listen, while there can certainly be areas of our lives where that very well may be the case, it doesn't mean that we can never enjoy the things that we are disciplined in. And 
You know, Nehemiah, as we read earlier, he commanded his people to set aside time to experience pleasurable things as a discipline for spiritual transformation. Nehemiah said, go enjoy, have, have the great food, feast, enjoy yourselves for the joy of the Lord is your strength. But here's the thing, true celebration is the opposite of self-indulgence. Self-indulgence is all about how much pleasure we can feed ourselves and fill ourselves with. And it demands more and more of it in order to actually remain fulfilled. What satisfied us yesterday might not satisfy us tomorrow when it comes to the pleasures and the desires of the flesh. But this is not true what true celebration is. True biblical celebration is when we exercise an ability to recognize and experience the simplest gifts from God. It's not about pursuing more and more and more stuff. It's about celebrating and resting in the goodness of Jesus day after day. It's a continual feast that we get to fill up on. We got to shift our perspective. We got to remember 2 Corinthians 6:10, where Paul wrote that they were sorrowful, yet they were always rejoicing. We got to remember Psalm 51:12. It says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That might be a word for some of us who have been Christians for a long time here. That maybe we need to pray, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation, that I wouldn't take for granted what you have done for me. When our perspective shifts, we respond to difficulties with joy. It changes things in this world. When we shift our perspective and we don't just look at the world around us and think, well, there's no hope, who cares? Instead, because we are continually feasting on the joy of God, we are filled with such a great hope that he's still got a plan and that he's got a purpose. In closing, I want to share two quick stories. In fact, I wrote about these stories in the intro to our 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting booklet. So some of you may be familiar, but I want to reiterate them on this day. I want to share them because there are two situations where people could have allowed their earthly perspective to overwhelm them. But instead, they set their perspective heavenward and they believed that God would move even in the midst of difficult circumstances. In November of 1949 in the northern islands of Scotland, there were two old women. One was 84 and one was 82 years old. Their bodies were um, really disabled because of arthritis and, and one of them was even blind. But they were so, uh, they were so overwhelmed by the fact that there were no young people in their town at all who were attending church. No young people. And instead of these two women saying, well, young people suck. They're the worst. Who cares? What's the matter with the next generation? They decided, these two women, 84 and 82, that they would meet twice a week in a small cottage and they would get on their knees before God and they would contend for and they would pray for the state of the young people in their town. And again, nobody was attending church at that time, but I just love that these two women were so burdened for the next generation that they pursued God in prayer. And because of the faithfulness of these women, they weren't overwhelmed by their perspective, but instead they said it heavenward. Because of this, all of a sudden, there were all the students in this small town were at this dance hall having a school dance. And it's amazing because they were there having a good time. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God fell upon them in that room and every single one of these young people were convicted and they said, we need to right now, not tomorrow, right now, we need to get ourselves into a church. 
And so they left that dance hall, all of them together, and they went down to the road to the church where there was an evening meeting going on. And they went from dancing in the presence of one another to going to the altar and dancing in the presence of Jesus and praising his name. Suddenly more people were coming to church. The church couldn't seat all the people. There was an overflow outside of the church of the amount of people that were trying to get into church, all of them young people, to experience what God was doing in that place. And this broke out in revival all across the northern part of Scotland in the decade of the 1950s. And it all began because two women who were not satisfied with what they were seeing did not bow down to their earthly perspective, but instead they set their sights heavenward and they believed God for more. On September 23rd, 1857, at exactly noon, there was a man who was a pastor in lower Manhattan. And he was so overcome by the fact that uh, he was overcome by the spiritual uh, just difficulties that were going on in New York City at that time, that people weren't following Jesus, that people weren't coming to church. But instead of being overcome and complaining and growing negative, because he was filled with the joy of the Lord, he put a simple sign out in front of the door that said, prayer meeting from noon to one o'clock. Stop by five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, however long you can stay. That first hour, it's like nobody was coming. He was there by himself, but he was still praying. In the last 10 minutes, six men, businessmen from Wall Street who were returning from their lunch break, saw the sign and they decided to stop by and they went in and they prayed for 10 minutes. And it wasn't necessarily remarkable. The earth didn't shake. But they made a decision that they would come back and they would pray the next week as well. Came back to pray again for the state of the way that things were. And this time they brought some more people with them. This time there was 10 people, and they stayed the whole hour. The next week they came back again brought more people. This time there was 20. They came back again the next week. It kept doubling in size week after week. It kept growing and growing to the point where the church wasn't able to contain all of the people who came to pray on the lunch hour. They had to move from weekly to daily meetings. People were still coming through. They had to move from daily to hourly meetings. People were still coming through thousands of people coming through the doors to pray and believe that God was going to do more than what they were seeing. They even had to put a sign on the door that said, you can only stay five minutes and pray because we got so many people that want to come in here and pray. It's amazing how the Spirit of God just began to move as people were seeking Him because this led to a revival across the United States that in its peak was seeing more than 50,000 people every single week making a decision to follow Jesus. By the end of it, more than one million people had made a decision to follow Jesus, all because one man decided to put out a sign that said, let's pray, let's believe God for more. I'm not satisfied with the current state of where things are at. Come on, we're called to be joy-filled people. We're called to overflow with joy. Every day we need to fight for joy in our lives. We need to pursue God. We need to pull up a chair to the table of the continual feast that he is offering us. But we need to position ourselves in his presence and believe that he is going to move. And listen, I believe that as we're filled with joy, that we as people will be marked by a different spirit. One that looks different than the world around us. One that doesn't bow down to our circumstance, but instead we can remain joy-filled. Because we know who God is. Let's not underestimate what God can do with just a few people who make that decision to pull up a chair in the presence of God and continually feast on the, the feast of joy that truly is available to us there. Come on, why don't we stand to our feet? Just in closing this morning, 
quickly, I just want to pray for two groups of people. Thank you for watching. Again, if you were impacted by this message in any way, send an email to mystory@slatechurch.com. You can also visit slatechurch.com and fill out one of our online connect cards. We would love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services. As well, you can stay connected with us by following us at Slate Church on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.